Welcome to episode one of From the Ground Up Athletic Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Jesse Curtis, and on today's episode, I'll be interviewing Tyler Rathke. Tyler is the head track and field coach at William Christman High School, located in Independence, Missouri. He's also involved in various aspects of strength and conditioning at the school. Tyler is a young, ambitious, and bright coach, and I know you'll enjoy the perspective he presents today on the show. We discuss a variety of topics, such as the building of an effective athletic foundation and how to naturally progress athletes. We also discuss his method of warm-up and the different neural aspects of training. Without further ado, let's get to it. Uh, so if you would just start out, man, just give us a brief introduction about who you are, where you're located, the athletic population you serve, and kind of how you got there. Yeah, so I've been here at William Crispin in Independence, Missouri for six years. We're a suburb, uh, if you want to call it that, of Kansas City, Missouri. Um, we're kind of a blend of, of that old part of the city. Us and Kansas City, Missouri are, are kind of where people are moving out of, and it looks a little bit older. Um, but yeah, I've been here for six years. I uh, was brought here as the head track coach from a community college as an assistant um, through a relationship uh, with a superintendent, an assistant superintendent here that had heard about me. Um, and I've been coaching a half day of uh, strength conditioning within our uh, high school, um, unspecific to sport, just kind of a blend of students. I want to take it as a course. Um, I've also coached basketball all six years at different various levels and currently serve as the head middle school basketball coach that direct feeds our high school. Uh, and then I uh, supervise the weight room after school in the fall and also have coached some cross country um, at the middle school level as well. But prior to this, uh, I guess I spent a little time in strength conditioning at University of North Texas as an intern uh, with Coach Frank Wintrick. And uh, basically, the, the kids, like I said, that I serve here, uh, we're a pretty big high school, but our percentage of kids that really participate in activities is very, very low. Um, so 1,400 students on paper and then about 300 or so students in the school that participate and the rest come to school and they go home. And so pretty low. Um socioeconomic status around our community, not a ton of money around, um, but some really great kids. And, and like I said, the, the advantages, I guess, of having small teams too, uh, <laughs> different experiences, you really get to spend time with kids and work uh, fundamentally with them in smaller groups. There are some benefits to having a small amount of kids that come out for things, uh, but there's some challenges then when you look at building teams and sustaining culture, um, it's definitely difficult. We were talking pre-podcast today about, you know, you guys won a state championship and that built all this uh, camaraderie in the community and everyone knew and wanted to be a part of that. And I feel like I've built some things here that I get an incoming kid out of the middle school and they have no idea that that happened, you know? So our state champions that we've had individually in track and field, I've always felt like should spark, you know, young kids in the community wanting to be shot put in disc throwers and wanting to do this and that. And, that's just not the case here. Um, maybe because we're in a bigger metropolitan area or maybe because there's not as much parent involvement. Um, but that's some, that's one of the challenges we face. And uh, but we've been very successful and I'm, I'm proud of everything we've done here and the challenges we've overcome and, and the facility improvements and everything that we've worked so hard for. So basically serve a lot of different roles, uh, strength conditioning, physical education, adaptive physical education, track and field, basketball and cross country. So I got a lot going on. Yeah, you sound like a man with many hats. 
so one of the things I kind of wanted to focus on, and, and I'll focus on with a couple of guests actually, is the idea of a foundation for, for individuals, building a foundation. And, and this could be a broad question. It could be just a foundation for life or a foundation for athletics. But uh, oftentimes, whenever I'm looking at programming and I'm examining the way that people go about programming uh, for athletics or for skill development, you have this idea of a foundation that's present. And uh, often I see extremes. I see people who only focus on a foundation and they never progress beyond that. And they stay within that foundation, very uh, basic movements. And then I see people who are to the other extreme where they never really build a solid foundation. And they try to progress too quickly, essentially. And one of the biggest things that, that I've kind of grown in is, is setting that foundation, especially with young athletes. So I guess what I want to start out with is when you're starting to work with an athlete, what's a important foundation or different foundational principles you're attempting to put in place? Yeah. So some of the first things I look at, and I'll give you a quick little background. Uh, I used to teach a biomechanics class here at the high school that um, myself and another educator helped kind of get started for physical therapy and athletic training students. And that's when I was introduced to uh, the FMS system. And so uh, functional movement screens is something that people have poked a lot of holes in, but it, it provides a basic movement screen foundationally. And so I use that uh, piece of that uh, primarily with all of my, my introductory students. Um, and we're and again, I have so many hats. I try to sometimes on podcasts, I start rambling. I don't identify where I'm talking, but specifically in the weight room, I think it's really important to move well on two so whether that's upper, uh, like a prone push-up position, or whether that's on two feet. And I think my progression then builds into more complexities and then looks at more unilateral. But just from a basic first assessment, I try to, I try to assess a bilateral squat, a bilateral push, which is through my prone push-up, which is the same as the uh, FMS uses. Uh, we do use a lateral lunge which I think is a little bit different, but I feel like that's a pretty uh, important movement quality for kids to use. Um, and then we use the split stance position similar to the FMS, how they would use on their board. And we look at that uh, ability to get into good positions there and be balanced. So I kind of just take a basic, a very basic approach. If I'm, if I'm getting a kid and I've never met him and I, and I, and I have to assess him quickly, that's what I go to. If I can see the, the movement qualities of the push and the squat are good, I know that I can work from there. And then that unilateral aspect of the split position lunge will give me an idea if I can even put him into single unilateral leg type activities or if he needs to continue to develop. So I think that gives me a, a great base. I also use um, different competencies through the warm up to address movement ability. Um, so rather than just focusing on weight movements, I try to look at the locomotion aspect and see where they're lacking. Um, so many young kids are lacking in so many places, um, just in simple, uh, strategies of gait. You know, I see a lot of kids just walking, uh, that have so many issues with gait, whether it's like a crossover pattern that I could address through some like neural RPR stuff or whether it's uh, the way that they're pushing off and they're not really getting into toe off and they walk on the lateral edge of their feet. And there's just so many unique things that you see when you're dealing with gin pop 
um, in a large high school where you can literally have any kid walk into your weight room. It's, it's, it's a big challenge, but having something that is consistent for you to assess and some indicators that you use as a baseline, I think give you a place to start. And it's just the, the managing of those multiple personalities that come in. And then as a, as a high school coach, um, I'll get new kids in my class pretty much year round that move in uh, from another program, which is always fun. I can usually see what that program emphasized, you know, if they were a powerlifting program or if they were an Olympic program or if they didn't care what their kid does and they don't really know any movement skills, I can see that stuff. So that's unique, but um, there's definitely challenges to um, any system, but for us, we're not like a basketball weights, a football weights, a soccer weights, like some other high schools. And we do have them during the day. And it's more of an educational experience, I would say, than, than an intense athletic development session sometimes, depending on the personnel in the class. Yeah, I would definitely say I've listened to you on prior podcasts and the arrangement of, of your uh, setting. It is definitely unique. Uh, you know, every, everywhere is different, but uh, having them all kind of sporadically throughout the day, that, that is a different setting. So I, I can see where that would be a challenge, but also uh, a positive as well, just, just like many things. Uh, a lot of the things you said, like I've been reading a book. I don't know if you've read it uh, from Pat Davidson. It's uh, Rethinking the Big Patterns. And a lot of the things that you said as far as like starting somebody – uh, with, you know, in a sagittal plane, perhaps something that's predictable, giving them something they can win at. Uh, he, he goes into a lot of depth in that. But basically what you what you said there uh, were a lot of the things that he promotes. And I've, I've really enjoyed reading that book as well. And uh, it shows you a great uh, method to advance people. A lot of the things you said have, I've, I've been reading the last couple of days, actually. Uh, so, yeah, foundation is an important part. The establishment of it, understanding uh, intent is important. Whenever you're working with a more aged population, you mentioned moving towards a perhaps more unilateral pattern, uh, more dynamic movement. Can you go into a little bit more detail uh, the exercises or methodologies you would kind of scaffold as you work with progressed populations? Yeah. So I think once that assessment occurs, you mentioned the sagittal plane. I feel like a lot of people get stuck there without even knowing. Um, and that's something looking back, I even feel I may have crossed into that line when I first started is just getting out of that plane. So I look at as I build or advance my classes, and I do have two levels of class. So I have an intro that stays pretty, stays pretty general throughout the entire year, um, because that's what they need. Uh, but then basically, I look to to move out of the sagittal plane as much as possible, and then progress to that unilateral position. So it's it's something where I try to build complexity and add additional load through those movements. So for example, because I'm a throws person, I see things in, in, in an interesting way, but like for a single leg movement. So most people would call like a, like a pistol squat off of a box. I basically provide different ways of, I guess you could refer to it as scaffolding or placing a large population of people into a certain modality within that single exercise in an advanced class. Uh, for example, the use of a counterbalance with arms, um, taking the arms away, increasing the height of the box. Uh, I tried to build that truthfully, that scaffolding into each setting and then place students there. And as we get to a high box without the use of an assistance or a counter, we then start to load. And so 10 pounds, 
uh, dumbbell goblet hold position, or then start to take the goblet position down to a, a bilateral dumbbell hold. That's the basically the way I build is I, I try to make it as simple as possible to start and then continue to add complexity or load at some point in that progression of that particular exercise. And I take that across the whole year. Um, and so basically within a given class, I could have eight different modalities of a single exercise and we're trying to progress to the top uh, or the most complex of that for my upper level athletes. And in a class of 32, I may only have one kid that gets there by the, by the end of the semester or whatever the case may be. So that's just kind of the way that I see things. I, I try to add assistance or resistance for either end of the spectrum. So I'm going to either resist through additional loading or complexity to, to make it more difficult and more challenging and maybe more, more specific, or I'm going to add assistance and make it less complex on the other end of the spectrum. And I know that's maybe pretty common, but that's just the way that I see progression in any type of movement competency or exercise or modality, whatever it is, that's the way I view it and, and script it. Absolutely. It, it makes a lot of sense. Uh, you're, you're putting things in place to successfully progress them throughout a, a wide variety of spectrums of movement. So that's great. Uh, before we kind of jump into something that stood out to me, uh, for for a second, uh, as far as lifts, we've discussed a lot about squatting and things. Or as far as your main lifts, uh, what what would those be? What are some ones that you include? Some that you might exclude? Yeah, I uh, I've definitely tried to get away from heavy bilateral movements. Um, That's where I was going next. And this is, this is a whole another conversation, right? Because so I have a feeder I have a feeder program at the middle school an outstanding coach. And I hope he listens. So I'm gonna give him a shout out. Josh Boswell is really, really good. Originally from Atlanta. He's an awesome dude. And he's created a culture of really competitive individuals coming into the school. Um, tip, more typically what you might see in a powerlifting type of model where there's three really big lifts and they're chasing numbers at a young age. And through our conversations, he goes, coach, maybe, maybe this is my fault. Maybe maybe kids come to you and they're, they're hungry for bench and squat numbers all the time because that's what we initially established. And so more and more for him at the seventh and eighth grade level, and he has the same situation as me, he has classes all day. Um, he's trying, he's trying to promote more movement skills and athletic type movement based approach and spend actually less time in the weight room. Um, to give me more of a complete mover that can come in and then we can start progressing. Um, so, and, and we have a real, we're in block scheduling now. All right. And this is why this is tough. It's always tough for me to hone in on a specific thing, but in the past, we'd been a four day lift um, with basically three 35 minute sessions in the week and one long session, which was right in the middle, which was not ideal. Um, and now we're block. So I'm every other day, 90 minutes, which has been nice. Um, so within a basically a three week structure that I'm building now, which would be seven sessions, seven to eight sessions, depending on the way the blocks lie out, I'm trying to touch those big bilaterals one time. And now there's other variants, I guess, uh, that are bilateral in nature, um, but I try not to. I try to change the modality 
a lot from for the neurological system, but a lot for addressing the weaknesses that my population doesn't have, right? Like they, they will compete their butt off in a back squat and it may not look great. They will compete in a bench press. They will compete portions of them through a hang clean. That's what they came to me knowing, but can I get them to compete in a single arm dumbbell split stance squat to press? Like, can I get them to, uh, so to work hard in a, in a split, any sort of split pattern, lower body exercise. And can I, can I get them to be good in those? That's been the challenge for me. Um, but I've definitely just tried to within a three week block and I'm going to get off track here, but within a three week block, I've tried to approach the entire body through every session and not isolate upper, lower, upper, lower. I've tried to address the whole athlete throughout the entire lift and maybe have a little bit more of a theme towards upper or lower, especially in an intensity within that given week. Um, but I've tried to address athletic qualities, um, with those big movements as well. I think that's one thing that we both have taken away from people that we're connected with is, uh, in a contrast fashion, you've got a heavy bilateral movement, uh, upper or lower and come back and do something, uh, unilateral dynamic or cross crawl as a part of that, um, for, to address the neurological system and then, um, you know, get the brain to light up and excite it. And so I have, I have not moved away from any exercise, truthfully. Um, that's the, those meat and potatoes that most people have, but I, I definitely don't, you don't see them every week in my training. I'm, I'm not gonna, um, I'm not going to use those same modalities across each week. And I think it gives kids a new challenge in a sense across a whole entire block um, because there's more variation. And I think the brain likes variation. And so far what I've seen with, with the performance indicators that I use, which sprints and vertical jumps is we've seen development in those categories uh, primarily, I think because of a lot of the variations that we've used in the weight room rather than, um, just squat bench clean and rotating those three big lifts and different intensities across your training block and then adding your supplementals in um, and not seeing crazy improvements in vertical jump um, variants and uh, sprint times. So I use those as justification. If at the end of a block, we're testing through those KPIs, which don't take me very long because of the technology I have, if I'm looking at those and I'm saying, and we are not improving, I know that I did something within the block because if I have such a wide variety variety of population, I'm okay with kids not improving every time. And I understand the, you know, the way that improvement works, it's more of a wave than it is a straight line. But um, if, if over the course of that block, I go back and reflect and I'm seeing large populations aren't improving those KPIs, then I know it's, I need to change something up and, and make an adjustment. Absolutely. A lot of good stuff there, coach. And yeah, for, for myself, you know, looking at the large bilateral movements for, for a long time, shamelessly, whenever I started out, man, we were moving some weight and we still move a lot of weight. Uh, but I, I've shifted to where that's kind of something that's potentiating things that are going to follow that rather than dragging them through the mud hole, essentially. Uh, 
the, the shift like you talked about as far as making it to where it's, it's going to transition more to sports and to locomotion because what actually happens whenever you load those heavy bilateral movements consistently, the, the locomotion is going to get thrown off through the, through the patterning. So everything you said there, 100%, that's, that's good stuff, Coach. Wow. Uh, one, one thing that I was thinking about and I was listening to a podcast uh, the other day and they were talking about unilateral versus bilateral training again. I didn't think we were going to go this, this in-depth on this, but uh, it just kind of popped up. As far as uh, the, the argument most people make against unilateral training, you, you're advancing complexity, the, the loading. As you advance complexity, the, the loading is typically not going to be there. So you, you mentioned that you do throw bilateral things in there to facilitate still being able to move load uh, at appropriate levels, or are you able to move appropriate loads? through unilateral training to drive strength adaptations? For me, I think improvements in unilateral strength drive improvements bilaterally, where I don't see bilateral improvements driving unilateral ability. Um, and I think when I, when I consider unilateral or more, more dominant single leg exercises, a split position, I'm on two feet. Like I'm, it's not as scary you know, if you're thinking of a, like a pistol squat off of a box into this deep, deep, deep position or something mm -hmm. like that, um, just a regular, just a regular split squat or an extreme front foot elevated or, or, um, and when I say extreme, I mean the position of the shin in relation to the foot, um, training those front foot elevated, rear foot elevated and regular split positions, um, give me double support. Um, and allow me to train unilaterally in my mind and have huge bang for buck towards bilateral and towards movement where I don't see that. I don't see that kid that comes to me who's only bilaterally moved his whole life. I, I can put him into unilateral exercise and he's just dominant. I see it the other way around. I see kids that can dominate unilateral variations, be able to hang with the bilateral crew that that's all they do. So yeah, you see it all the time with unilateral uh, exercises. It's like the split squat uh, position. You know, Cal Dietz has really popularized that over the last couple of years. And you see people that are not comfortable bilaterally squatting, you know, two, three times their body weight in the split squat with the uh, safety pins there. So, I mean, absolutely. I'm not saying that you can advance it that way, but that's often what you'll hear from uh people that are bilateral proponents, I guess you would say that, you know, you can't load it, I guess, the way that people would approach that sure. essentially. Uh, and you're like what you mentioned, the deep pistol squat, uh, not putting them in a position of support. So it's just uh, all the, all about how you go about advancing that unilateral. Absolutely. Yeah. We just, we just ordered, I'll throw this in there too. We, one idea there to increase loadability, we just ordered nine, I have nine racks. We just ordered nine safety squat bars. Um, and I, and I'm, I'm a big fan. I, I don't know exactly what the terminology would be, but a uh, hand supported uh, split variations where I can grab onto something and I'm adding that assistance and I'm able to load that way more without the, without a kid being nervous about, you know, stability, finding stability and balance. Um, so I'm, I, I'm not trained myself personally with a, with a safety squat bar, but I'm looking forward to, increasing my ability to load them and the ability to add complexities using that bar being in a more stable position and comfortable for the athlete. So I, I think there's, there's ways to help yourself, but um, yeah, I, 
I think you can get after it with single leg exercises too. Absolutely. Uh, so let's kind of shift gears here a little bit. Uh, let's talk a little bit about in-season training, how you view the role of in-season training, its importance, or how you would progress that. So as you move throughout an athletic uh, year, what would be your views on how you would structure in-season training? So I'm in the, the situation where I got talked about the number of kids that participate in sports at our school or at, at activities. Okay. Let's say uh, what that, 20, 20 to 30% of our population will participate. So what I run into is a majority of our athletes are at minimum a two sport athlete. And a majority of our athletes are a three sport athlete. Um, you know, we had a girl almost break our school record in the javelin yesterday. First meet of her life. She's our best outside hitter. She is our, um, as a sophomore, our sixth man, if you will, coming off the bench of a final four basketball team. And she's going to break the school record and probably be all state as a sophomore. First time ever throwing the javelin. So if, if I don't, if I don't train that girl, if, if I, if I don't train that girl throughout the season, we never train because in her case, then summer, this summer might be even more of an in season for these kids that are multi-sport athletes. Cause then they're doing all three at the same time. Now she's playing AAU basketball. She has volleyball hit nights twice a week, you know, and she's going to probably not throw out a javelin, but the point is we're always in season. So if I, if I structure too much change or I build this culture of like, uh, we're going to change up a bunch on game days or prior to game days, then we miss out on, on almost the entire year uh, for our athletes. And, and truthfully, I, I could go through my lists and, and most of my kids are playing a sport every season. So it just comes with intelligent design, I think, overall. Like my volumes are relatively probably lower than most people's. Um, I don't think my job here is to get someone to their max potential strength wise. Like I, I don't see my role as trying to get guys as big as they can possibly be by the time I leave here. I see myself as a facilitator of really good movement and being able to then leave here, walk into a program at the college level or go to the local planet fitness and start doing your bodybuilding lifts. And all of a sudden you're just going to blow up because you already have this ability to move. Well, you have a general idea of, of load and resistance, and then you leave here and you can grow as opposed to the other route, which is I try to pump dudes up. I try to get them as big as possible. And then we have injury and that career never continues on. And the, and the ability to train has been now, affected uh for the even the guy that becomes a, a bodybuilding type guy he's got a shoulder injury that limits his ability to train the rest of his life so i would say my volumes are relatively low my approach each day is a total body approach so we're always we're not going to be ultra sore upper or lower one way or the other coming into a game um so i just basically stay the ship um when we get into more important ports portions of our season for, like I mentioned, our girls final four run that they had, I will try to have a good enough relationship and understanding of what's going on in the room uh, to know what that individual really likes. And again, I'm getting off here, but we had a state champion, heavyweight boy wrestler, a good discus thrower and a football player who loved, loved heavy, heavyweight for low, low, low volume. Like that, like some people would be scared uh, to allow him to go 90% for 
two reps on the day of the state championship, but that dude was fueled. He, his nervous system loved it. And I'm telling you through experimentation, as part of like being able to go through the process in season and continues to train, you learn what works and what doesn't work on game day. If I'm always trying to change it to light and fast or heavy and, and low or anything on any of the spectrum, then I might be doing a disservice to that kid. So I try to, especially as they get older, 11th and 12th grade kids, they know what works for them and, and what they like. And I try to seek that out, like what they particularly like, and then utilize that, especially late in the season um, as they're getting into those important games to fuel the nervous system and, and low volumes on either end of the spectrum fast or heavy or light. I try to stay relatively low volumes and, and then uh, use that as kind of a peak um, as we get closer to those big games, really pull back on the volume again, and then find what they like and allow them and enable them to, to be creative and do that um, with supervision and not feel like they have to go through the exact same lift as, as what my class might be doing that day. Absolutely. A lot of the constraints that you mentioned is, you know, what all high school coaches see throughout the nation. I mean, I'm at a smaller school than you, so I have high participation myself. I have kids that are in football PE, but they're baseball players uh, and they're in their competitive season. Now I have kids running track. I have kids that play baseball track and do football. Uh, So absolutely everything you said there makes perfect sense. I, I love the idea on low volume because it's not just your session uh, that that's to be accounted for. There's so many other factors beyond what you're doing. And if you're not thinking about those and and really utilizing yours to leverage them to perform uh, whenever they're away from you, then, you know, you're missing the boat on that. So a lot of the things you, you said there really resonated with me. Uh, One thing that I've, I've heard you discuss before, and I'd really like to to get you uh, to discuss today is your idea on how to effectively warm up your athletes. So if you would coach, would you kind of discuss your methods on your warm ups? Yeah, for sure. So um, it depends on the setting that I'm in, you know, the uh, 12 and 13 year old boys basketball teams warm up looks different than the advanced strength training and my track team does a lot more RPR hands, hands on themselves things than my general weight students do. But I, I look at it, I guess, if we want to stick in the weight room, uh, I have a couple of different dynamic warmups that we'll use that ad- address all the different uh, planes of movement, not much different than most people would, I think, you know, without even knowing that's what they're doing. And then I have some ground-based stuff that we'll use uh, primarily on upper body bilateral days. Um, we'll get on the ground um, as a part of uh, a way that I see to prevent the wear and tear on the legs, um, uh, increase some mobility, and then we use some neural things. So like for my uh, weights classes on a ground-based bilateral upper day, with there's some if there's some bilateral upper pressing or even unilateral, uh, we'll address the shoulder through total motion release, uh, which is a good sided mechanism um, that we'll use uh, we do a lot of diaphragmatic breathing. That's the one piece of RPR that I feel very comfortable teaching to a general class. I feel like um, it's just good mechanics of movement for them to learn how to breathe effectively and control and maintain stress. Um, but we will use those different types of, of systems, I guess, and in, a, in our warm up. And then there's a lot of things that we use too in my in my other classes. Uh, use of infinity walks, uh, use of neural adaptations, like, um, 
just weird stuff that's just very hard to explain, but like global flexion and extension releases and uh, vestibular stimulations uh, and excitements and, and all those different types of things, like those are all in my back pocket. So on a given day, class comes in flat, maybe we have to do that sort of stuff or uh, maybe I throw in some competitive game that's going to excite the nervous system. Um, it's just basically for me, it's always been just the efficient and effective coaches. I feel like are ad- able to adapt on the fly. And so you have something planned for the day. You, this is what you want to do. Let's say from a warm up standpoint, they walk in the door and, and what you see is that that's not best for you have to be able to adapt and, and go on the fly. I'll get kids 20, you know, let's say I have 30 kids in a class. 20 are in good shape, but 10 just played the freshman football game yesterday and Johnny's shoulders hurt and Tim's shins hurt. And I just got to like be able to, I view myself as in that, in that service as well as like getting them ready to even be able to train or to, to, like you said, go back to the primary funk, like the primary thing for them is football that, that season. So I've got to get them ready to play the football game next week or that Friday or whatever the case may be. So um, I definitely have a ton of, of neural approaches that I take in a warm up, um, and I think that are valuable. And I think for people that aren't um, in that audience of folks, I think you produce a lot of great content um, that you're sharing that really force people to think. Um, and I think that's that's a great place to start because if you're listening to this podcast, they probably follow you. Um, but then just reaching out to, to, like you said, people like Cal Dietz, Chris Corfus, Dan Victor, those are some of the, the square one system guys, um, the FRC guys, and in, in, in a way, um, functional range conditioning, they put out some great stuff in, in exposing the joints to different ranges. Um, there's just a lot of, there's a lot of deep rabbit holes. I, I think that each one you could literally spend a, an entire podcast talking about how you incorporate or use it and, and just, for me, it's just educating people on knowing that there's, there's ways to, to do some things. And if you'd like, if we have time, I can talk to you quick. I think it'd be cool to talk a little bit about um, a method that I used in physical education, just general courses, if that's something you feel would be valuable. Absolutely. A lot of the things you just said, just kind of spoke to a lot of things that I've been putting out lately. Like yesterday, I tweeted about the fact that motor skills are going to be prevalent within your athletes before they ever even get to you because, you know, people who aren't willing to dive down that rabbit hole, they don't think about the fact that those early years of development are going to really set the tone for how people move and and move through locomotion for their entire life, essentially, unless something is done, you know, there can be changes that occur, but uh, everything that you just spoke to, I'd I'd love to hear it. And I'd love to go down that path. Yeah. I think, I think one thing with that in mind, I just had a conversation with a, a basketball coach friend of mine is we were talking about, you know, his, he's much older than me looking back at his generation and, and how, you know, there were really good athletes um, back in that day. And, and it almost seems like there was more athletes then maybe higher level athletes now, but there was a, a higher volume in your community of kids who were athletic quote unquote, or had those movement abilities. And we were talking and he goes, coach, kids don't go out and play anymore. They're in their house. They're playing video games. They're stagnant. Um, and that's, that's where your lack of exposure to movement and ranges and um, nervous system related things. If, if we're not giving that, throughout a lifetime when we just show up at high school at 14 and we try to start start trying to do those things we're 
we're going to be significantly behind. And that's, I never really thought about that, but it, it makes sense. You know, when you're, when you're a kid in the sixties, you're going outside and playing ball, you're going to the park, you're climbing trees, you're, and I don't see that as much anymore. Like I said, 70% of our buildings going home or going to work after school. So, so I think it, it's an issue that, you know, as I look, just got married, as I look to become a father of some kids, I want to make sure, you know, like what Rob Assisi did in his basement with just creating like a jungle gym that the kids can just explore and move and, and figure it out. Um, some of those competencies, I just think that's important and keeping the cell phone out of their hand. I know it's easy. And when you're a busy person like me, it'll be very hard to resist giving technology as a way to distract. But I just, I think that's dangerous. And I want to make sure I give my kid the opportunity to explore and move and have fun and run and jump and skip and drop and fall, all those things. But um, real quick, I guess, with uh, one real big thing, and I'd love anyone that listens to follow up with me if they have specific questions, I put together a presentation um, and I meant to put together a real formal presentation, just never, never got around to it for anyone. Um, but I had one for my physical education department. And one thing that was really cool, a lot of things I took from Dan Victor um, had to do with the flexibility. So we all think about increasing flexibility and how hard that is and how long we spend doing stretching and all those things. And for me, I've used some different um, techniques to address flexibility through a basic sit and reach test in my PE classes. And I've actually shared it with all of the PE teachers in my district and they've started using it and they're just like blown away and they think it's really cool. And, and so if you want to uh, try this, you're more than welcome. But anyway, I have a flexion global release, which is my palm to my forehead. Uh, we start with belly breathing. I skipped that. We start with belly breathing to try to reshape uh, the way the body uh, perceives safety, I guess, and unlocks some ranges of motion. We use the flexion global release. We use the extension to the back of the head. So typically we're on the ground. I'll lay back on the gym floor and push the upper part of the, of the skull into the ground as an extension release. Uh, we will roll, twist, or turn uh, to stimulate the vestibular system. And then we will use the startle or stumble reflex uh, by doing like a partner trust fall uh, or using a gym, a gym pad a pad in the gym on the baseline and most people have them. We'll cross our arms, close our eyes and just fall. Um, and that gets the body uh, to release other extension flexion mechanisms. And then basically I use each one of those pretests and then I keep assessing fl uh, flexibility in this sit and reach. And it's amazing the amount of kids that you have that can't touch their toes rather, rather because they can't extend the knee first or because they can't flex the hip or whatever the case may be. And through just those simple, like matter of minutes to do that, um, those things in a class and it's kind of fun for them. And then all of a sudden they can touch their toes. And if you want to talk about buy-in right off the bat through a warm up or through an activity, um, that's a great way to do it. Absolutely. Uh, the, the buy-in part, I mean, you know, you, you've mentioned RPR, I do RPR. A lot of people use RPR now and uh, you have to give kids buy-in to anything that you're promoting to them. You have to show them that it works. And the things that you mentioned, I love it because a lot of the times you talked about range of motion, flexibility, and all people are thinking about a static stretch. And I, I, I'd have to tell my kids all the time, it's not just static stretch and stretching doesn't, isn't the be all end all to solving the world's problems essentially. So I, I love all those brain-based uh, things that you're throwing out there. Uh, yeah. If, if you are interested in that type of stuff, no doubt, check that out. Sounds awesome. Uh, I guess the thing I'd like to end with, Coach, is uh, are there any other particular resources that you're into at this time, be it a book, course of study, or anything that you would promote or suggest? 
Man, I am right in the middle of track season, so I am all in for track and field. Um, but I do have some I'm, – I'm big into professional development. So I guess it just depends on kind of where you're at. But I'll, I'll share some things that I have purchased that I have not finished. Uh, the, the Altus Foundations courses and Essentials courses I think are, are a slam dunk because you have access to that content forever. Um, so even at, within a department – sharing some of that with other people. I can get really off here. I've got uh, Eric Cressy, Sturdy Shoulders uh, and Medicine Ball Drills uh, that I got through, I think, Mike Boyle's website. Uh, I ordered the uh, Sprint Mechanics book from Tom Tellas and Carl uh, down at Houston uh, that I haven't I just got, got, got done with that. It's a good one. You're I good. haven't got to dive into that. I, I, I have so much stuff that I get and I just never get around to getting through it. Um, I'm actually... Uh, Derek Evely's Bonderchuk course. He's got some other really good courses, but I have that. I have not finished yet. I know uh, the Dan Fichter's um, courses, uh, him and obviously Sean, Sean at Square One System, but Dan's uh, neurology courses he's been putting out are, the are IP, really cool. Yeah, yeah the IP. Yeah. I, I did not get the opportunity to be on it, but he offered it up to me in that first small group, which was really cool. I hope to get into that um, down Pizza. the road. And then uh, I guess TFC, man, like TFC opened my eyes to so many things. Uh, Track and football consortium with Tony and, and Chris. Um, that opened my eyes ideologically, uh, training, you know, and we talked about pre-show, just you're always looking for an edge. You know, I don't go to TFC looking to change my program. 180 degrees. I like to, I like what I like. I, I know what, what works, what I've seen work. And I'm just looking for ways and additional tools to stuff in my back pocket and, and address and use um, for kids. And so I saw they released the other day, they've got their next TFC going to be in person. They're announcing a date somewhere here in the Midwest is what I've, I've been told. So I think anyone that's, that's a football strength conditioning movement person coach of any kind though that is a great place to start and you will meet and and you will meet people how we meet um you will meet and interact with other professionals that will expand your horizon and your ability to learn and grow as well so um yeah that's kind of what i got um not a lot of time to read right now man we're three meets varsity wise deep into our season and we've got a we've got a pretty good squad in some areas so um just staying really busy I understand that that's kind of how I am at during football season. I, I appreciate you taking the time during this hectic time of your year to sit down with me and uh, converse and, and share some things. Uh, last thing, where can people find you and get a hold of you if they want to? Yeah, so I'm on Twitter uh, at Coach underscore Rathke. Um, I'm also on Instagram. Not super exciting, just pictures of me and my wife. Um, <laughs> uh, I have a Facebook as well. People could People we could share ideas through there. Um, but yeah, if you want to share my email in the coach and in the notes, sorry, you can. I'll, I'll shoot that over to you. Um, Absolutely. And people uh, can email me because I just like to talk and have conversations with people because it forces you to evaluate what you do and and then also examine what others do and see if there's ways that you can improve your program. So uh, Twitter is kind of my main thing, and uh, I'd be happy to to chat with anyone through social media. Awesome. Thanks so much for coming on, Coach. It was a great show. Thank you. Yeah, thank you very much, and good luck with this podcast. It's going to be awesome. Thank you so much. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed Episode 1.
The podcast is live across all platforms, Apple, Spotify, Google. Don't forget to subscribe to keep up with the latest content. And leave me a rating and review if you feel led to. Next week, my guest will be Chris Romano, author of the book on cleans and their role in sports performance. Again, thanks for listening. (laughs) 